The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we are talking about what it takes to be a mother in the wild and how human moms compare to other moms in the animal kingdom. We're spending an hour with Dr. Karen Bonder, prolific science communicator and author of Wild Sex. We'll be discussing a myriad of stories from her latest book, Wild Moms, covering the exciting, stressful, and even sinister sides of motherhood. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hasra. With me is Dr. Karen Bondar, a science communicator who has hosted TV shows for Animal Planet, National Geographic, and the Science Channel, and has written and hosted two online series with Seeker. She's also the author of the books Wild Sex and Wild Moms. Karen, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. One of your first books is called Wild Sex, uh, where you explore how sex and reproduction work in wild animals. Sex can lead to the birth of children or offspring. So uh, I guess it was only natural for your next book to be about motherhood. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So why don't you start by uh, just giving us a general overview of what Wild Moms is about and why you wrote it? Sure. Yeah. So the motherhood book followed, as you said, fairly organically from the sex book. In fact, the last uh, section, the last third of the sex book was about the aftermath of sex. You know, sex is such an all encompassing uh, venture, I guess you could say. And so it's, it's, it's really worthwhile to think about it in terms of the entire process, which includes the aftermath or the children. Um, and of course, it just, uh, I'm a mother of four myself, and I find my, you know, my day to day is often uh, this this mix of crazy chaos with my own kids. But then I am this sort of philosopher, biologist who sort of thinks about animals and moms. And so I kept asking myself questions about how other moms in the animal kingdom might handle similar problems to the ones that we have. Um, you know, children who don't listen or that need potty training or that need to eat certain kinds of foods or, or all those sorts of things. And, and that's kind of how the book rolled out. What does motherhood look like for the other animals? What exactly fascinates you about motherhood and how it functions in animals other than humans? I think I'm so fascinated by it because humans tend to do a lot of things quite differently than other animals and especially other mammals and primates um, in the context of our behaviors being not so biological, if you will. And so I think that motherhood is this wonderful thing to look at, especially when you consider that motherhood is, is much more uh, abundant, plentiful, and and uh, pragmatic, I guess, than fatherhood. <laughs> and um, and so mothers are really the ones that are doing everything from gestating to obviously birthing to lactating. If we're talking about mammals, um, and and much of that early bonding is between mom and babe. And so, yeah, there really isn't much of a role for, for fathers to play, um, in, in these internally gestating mammals. And so that, because it's such an immense thing, that's what fascinated me about it the most. So what are the most striking differences between human moms and non-human moms that you've learned about while researching your book? I think some of the big things, um, are that we as humans tend to 
to <laughs> rethink, overthink, underthink um, the way that all the rest of, of the primate moms have done things for millions of years. And I, I think that's kind of interesting. Things like ingesting the afterbirth and placenta, it's something that's ubiquitous in the rest of the mammalian primate world. And, and it's something that's actually quite frowned upon in most um, aspects of most echelons of Western society, which is, which is actually quite strange. Also, um, the birthing process is something that's really different between humans and other mammals. Um, well, other primates. We, we are the only ones that walk upright. And so this puts, um, physical limitations on the, the girth of our pelvis and this, this perfect storm of needing or, or evolving babies with big brains, uh, but walking upright and having very small pelvises has kind of made our birthing process very, very difficult and pain intensive, um, which has then led us to develop things like the cesarean section. Um, and a lot of women opt to, to do that, um, with, when there isn't really necessarily a medical reason for it. Um, and so, yeah, all of these kind of interesting interventions and ways that we've kind of overtaken our own biology and decided that we, you know, we can probably do better than, than millions of years of evolution and we ought to maybe try it that way. <laughs> I, I find it utterly fascinating. I was actually a C-section baby. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, it's not like it's, it's uncommon. Um, and I, I think, you know, there's definitely a difference between deciding to have one to avoid the pain of childbirth. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, needing one medically. Obviously, you need to do what's best for your baby, no matter what. But we're actually keeping very small pelvis genes in our <laughs> populations. There's actually some studies that show that um, human pelvises are evolving to be uh, even smaller with bigger headed babies because of the fact that women are having oh, C-sections so that is, prevalently. That's so interesting. So for me, it was Isn't actually it? necessary because I would think it was like one or two months premature and it had, it had to be done. Um, but yeah, just going back to what you were saying about how, you know, human moms tend to overthink things these days and, you know, they tend to make decisions based on, you know, the opportunities we have thanks to technology. So do you think that, uh, wild moms maybe are more intuitional when it comes to motherhood than human moms are? I think that um, the bond between mom and baby is pretty solid, uh, regardless of species. I think that even though we do these kind of interesting interventions, um, we still have there. We're very much intertwined by our biology when it comes to that basic bonding between mom and babe. Um, and I think that's something that's that's quite similar and overreaching um, of around the whole, the entirety of the, of the mammalian class um, that. That, that very individual and specific bond between um, an adult female and the baby she has birthed. It's pretty, it's pretty profound, Great. regardless so, of species. Yeah. Yeah. Going into my, my next question pretty smoothly, actually, um, what do you think are some of the most surprising similarities between humans and other animals when it comes to motherhood? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that would definitely be one. I think another one that really delighted me, <laughs> I guess you could say, is that that in the primate world, things animals like chimpanzees, for example, chimpanzee moms, you know, chimps and humans are very, very similar. And these moms don't get it right first off. Um, not like something like a rat or um, other uh, 
members of the rodent family that seem to have their maternal behaviors genetically programmed and already contained within them. They seem to innately know how to do it. Um, and I don't know about many of the moms listening, but when I had my first kid, I was just an absolute hot mess. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know. I, I felt like I was just out of my element. And so it was comforting for me to read about other primate moms that need to learn mm-hmm. <laughs> how to do it. And and then we don't get it right all the time automatically. Um, and that's okay because the babies are resilient and the babies teach us as we teach them. And as we, you know, we're all kind of going through this together. I found that was a really heartwarming um, aspect of primate biology to learn about. We're not alone there. Do you think that learning curve is something that comes with being a social animal? Because you mentioned I, the rats and how it's innate for them to, they just kind of, I guess, through intuition, understand what they need to do when they're a first mom, when they're taking care of a litter. But for primates and for us, we're both like social species or social beings. Um, you know, there is that learning curve for with the first child. That's true. I think that um, there's aspects of brain development across sort of higher orders of mammals that make things a little more complicated um, and, and, and not even necessarily about the pragmatics of it, but about sort of how our brains go off on different tangents and, and, and make things more complicated for us when they don't necessarily even need to be. I think that that's the kind of aspect we start seeing in human mothering and all also in uh, uh, other apes and, and animals that do have more complex brains. It's it, it's the capability um, to be an overreaching and philosophical um, animal that, that also allows us to overcomplicate things, I think. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword, if you will. Do you think we have room to make mistakes and learn and overthink things because we have that social support? Hmm... Yes. I, I think that's a, that's a really great point. Um, having that, you know, on two, on two levels. So yes, I would say, um, when people have that support, that's actually what it's meant to be. And it's thought that, um, humans as a social species evolved to, to, um, to help each other or sort of to, you know, because of the fact that our childbirthing is so difficult, mothers need support immediately. And this comes from our, uh, social bond that we make. The support that a new mother receives is not often from a new father. It is generally from a midwife or um, some other female who's been there before. And this is in the animal kingdom I'm talking about. Um, and so that's that's something that kind of allows us to, to observe how the basic biology still works the same. But now, interestingly, what we do in Western societies and, oh gosh, all over the world really, is that we hold ourselves up in our own little houses, apartments, um, you know, living quarters, and we isolate. Um, and, and this doesn't necessarily breed happiness or success, um, when new mothers are, are by themselves <laughs> trying to figure this out. And, and that's why your question is so poignant because it takes away this really important biological aspect of what makes us into the creatures and the mothers that we are is that social interaction. And when we go home to our perfect little, you know, mansions with our little baby rooms and put the baby in the perfect crib and whatever, that takes that direct social element away. And that's a big deal. 
we're getting a little philosophical here. Uh, I somehow managed to sneak at least one philosophical question into every interview I do. So here's yours. Uh, <laughs> What do you think it means to be a mother? And what I'm getting at is, is it enough to just give birth to offspring and then take off? Or are you required as a mother to provide some sort of care or affection to your offspring? So I think we see the entire spectrum of what it means to be a motherhood, uh, to be a mother across the animal kingdom. We see things like uh, rabbits who will give birth and then take off and, you know, periodically visit their infants. But for, for pure biological reasons, it's unsafe for her to, to dote on them too much. Does that make her a bad mother? Actually, arguably, no. That makes her a great mother because she's giving her babies the best chance to survive. So there's a lot of ways that we can sort of examine um, whether direct care in certain ways is beneficial. Of course, we'd have to look at the evolutionary history of each animal as well. But I think um, generally speaking, <sighs> moms become different animals as they gestate babies. So again, the book, it becomes very mammalian centric because when we think about cooking something, cooking a bun in your oven, um, this is this is applying only to mammals. Um, this makes a female different. And this is a huge and interesting point and a very important one. A female will never be the same animal again after she has gestated uh, an offspring or a litter of, of pups or whatever the case may be. There are biological, physiological, psychological changes that happen that never change back again. And so that individual animal is a different animal. Does she have a duty? Um, duty is, is kind of, I guess, uh, an operative term to, to define. What does duty mean? It means a different thing for every animal. So, um, and to be fair, I guess there's also room for personality in motherhood across the mammalian world. So you may have, for example, a, a zebra or a giraffe who's, you know, more gregarious. We, we allow our personalities to inform our, our, the way that we mother. And so mothers that are naturally more outgoing will raise babies that are naturally more outgoing also, um, mothers that are more careful will raise more careful infants. Is one better than the other? No, not necessarily. There's a million factors to consider in any situation. Do you think a good, simple measurement of what makes a good mother could just be the mother is able to have offspring that survive to adulthood and have offspring of their own? So maybe a mother can become a grandmother and, you know, just continue the chain, the family tree. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of just if we're going to define it in terms of Darwinian evolution, that's that's the name of the game. Survive, reproduce, get those genetic blueprints into the following generation and you're good to go. Um, yeah, that generally that's how biologists would define success. So your book is pretty thorough, but I'm sure you can't cover everything there is to know about motherhood in just one book. So what aspects of motherhood did you choose to focus on? Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like there's an entire other book. I mean, probably yeah. several, but um, I would love to do a spineless edition. I, I really didn't focus on invertebrates at all in this book. Um, other than to briefly mention aspects of invertebrate reproduction, like broadcast spawning or perhaps brooding. Um, so I'd love to get a chance to dive more deeply into the invertebrate moms. So I had to pretty much limit it this time to uh, birds 
and um, mammals. Yeah. So, but birds are, are you know, another really interesting um, model for motherhood because they actually do something totally different than mammals. They, they lay these things called eggs. <laughs> and this actually, you know, when you break it down and you, you philosophically tease out the components, what this means is a mom basically gives birth to a baby that's inside of this, this little shell, um, very, very early on in gestation. And the ultimate functionality of that is that dad can help. Dad isn't quite so powerless as he is in the mammalian world where really mom's body is the vessel that's doing everything. Dad might might as well not stick around because what's he going to do anyway? Um, in the bird world, dads actually have a legitimate job to play. And so that really plays out in terms of um, bird moms that often rely a lot more on bird dads than than mammalian moms do. It's great that you are talking about bird moms because they have a lot of really interesting strategies. So let's talk strategies. So okay. bird moms, they lay clutches of eggs, like you mentioned, and they'll actually invest a lot more uh, resources in one egg versus another, as I read in your book. So that's really interesting. What exactly is the strategy there? Yeah, it it's a wonderful opportunity for biologists to look at the specifics of maternal investment because eggs are these finite little packages of stuff. And the only thing we, I mean, we know based on what we know about physiology and biology, the only thing that a male has, has contributed there is a, a sperm is, <laughs> is one, one delicious cell of sperm. <laughs> um, and everything else has come from the female. And this is really advantageous because things like food, nutrition, um, hormones, neurotransmitters, fats, um, antibacterials, uh, other immune function boosting compounds, these are also all included in eggs in various um, quantities. Biologists haven't really even teased out how female birds make this happen, but they do. And so there's this interesting mix of ecology, that is the behavioral aspects um, of egg laying. And well, are we, you know, is dad a dud, um, as you were alluding, you know, is, is the father not um, up to snuff? If so, mom might not want to invest as much in that egg. Um, conversely, if dad is, you know, the big man on campus and he's, you know, the alpha or whatever the social structure might be, mom might then want to actually make that, uh, make a bigger investment in an egg because she got better genetic material from uh, from the father. And so bird moms strategize quite a bit. Um, another aspect of egg laying that's, that's really important to think about is timing. Um, the first egg that mom lays is generally, oh, I don't know, depending on the species, several days uh, older than the, the eggs that come along later. And that means uh, loosely that that egg will hatch first. This little chick will start getting fed first and ultimately be bigger and stronger than its later hatching siblings. This is a huge problem for later hatching siblings who aren't as loud and don't get enough food. And so moms will often provision their last eggs with increased levels of testosterone um, or androstenones and things like that so that they uh, grow a little faster and they're a bit more aggressive because they're going to be basically the runt <laughs> mm-hmm. of the litter. And so mom provisions them accordingly. This is like really complicated and really, you know, something that we don't necessarily ascribe to birds is the ability to be as acutely intelligent as this. So what's the point of laying multiple eggs if the mom is going to treat them differently? And why not just lay 
one egg and so to speak, uh, just put all your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We do see that as a strategy for some animals. So we, we basically see the full spectrum. We see some animals where that is the strategy. Make the best egg or two eggs that you can do. Sit on them. It's care for them. Um, implicitly, that is your, you know, role. And that egg receives a lot of attention. Um, and then literally, as you said, that is putting your eggs in one basket. So usually with, with, um, many different animals, we, consider the term bet hedging. So instead of uh, putting everything in one basket, we, we hedge our bets and we sort of put a few eggs in different baskets. And we uh, a female might opt to, to lay uh, more eggs or fewer eggs, depending on the immediate concerns of the environment. And then maybe in a subsequent season, if uh, the conditions are better, she may lay more. Um, so uh, that's another aspect that females are consistently having to assess. Is it better? Is it worth the risk of trying to have another uh, egg or offspring at this point, or, or should I wait? Um, that's not limited to birds either. Mammals uh, are engaged in that too. Yeah. And then another question for you is why would a female bird choose to lay an egg that is fathered by, I guess, a low quality or not so impressive male at all if they're just not going to invest as much in that offspring? <laughs> There may not be a choice. Um, there's often an um, aspect of sexual coercion or um, social hierarchy that need uh, aspects of social hierarchy that need to be followed. Um, and so a female may not always have a choice. There simply may be no other males around. Maybe that's the only guy she can find. It depends <laughs> on, you know, you know, and in, in Northern um, animals, this is actually a real concern because, you know, there's these massive icy landscapes across which it's difficult to find partners. I suppose that's more uh, relevant, not so much for birds, but more for um, mammals. But there's a lot of reasons why a female um, would be, quote unquote, stuck with um, a less desirable partner. There could be a lot of competition from other females. Maybe he didn't choose her. Uh, maybe he couldn't find her. You know, there's, there's always uh, a real huge number of factors to consider. Okay, there's a crazy example in your book of uh, false mothering in Nazca boobies, where pseudomoms will actually harm the unintended unintended offspring of other Nazca booby moms. So could you describe this example in, in more detail? Yeah, this is a really dark and strange and fascinating example that's actually only been observed so far in Nazca boobies. This is a tropical species um, that lives basically in the islands of the Galapagos Archipelago. And um, this phenomenon has been shown in several diverse populations of these animals. So that basically means it is kind of ubiquitous across the species. What happens, these being seabirds, um, and, and seabirds, the, the problem is always going to be having to lay their eggs and just stay, uh, you know, incubate these eggs uh, on land and then go out to the ocean to find food um, in, in the form of fish usually. And depending on resource conditions in resource shortages, mom and dad may both have to be away from the nest in order to find enough food to bring back to baby, which basically creates a situation where baby is left alone um, in the nest while mom and dad are off foraging. Um, in several cases, uh, what happens is these, these individuals called alloparents 
come along and, and give a hand. Um, and these are individuals who maybe had a failed brood that year or who haven't found a partner um, that can basically babysit while mom and dad are are unavailable. However, what's observed in these Nazca boobies is that these, so in the case of the Nazca boobies, when mom and dad are away from the nest, um, there are these alloparents or these um, non-parental adult visitors or nabs <clears throat> that come and see the babies. And biologists first started observing this and they, they saw these adults visiting these babies, bringing them little gifts, little pebbles or feathers. And, you know, it seemed to be quite appeasing, sort of gentle, maybe some grooming. Um, however, as biologists continued to observe this behavior, it actually also became violent. So these visitors to the babies actually pecked holes or pecked wounds into the backs of the necks of these little babies, um, didn't kill them directly, but left them with open wounds that would then leave them susceptible to other blood-sucking parasites and other parasitic birds and things like that. So basically, indirectly kill the baby. There's a third category of these adult visitors that that sexually abuses these young chicks yeah. um, right during these visits. And this is actually a, a case of, of something that's, that continues to perplex biologists. We don't have a well-founded reason for why this might occur. Um, we can discuss aspects of biological fitness, perhaps um, when you abuse the chicks, not sexually, but when you get rid of the chicks of your closest competition that could be advantageous of you in future years because you won't have other competitors. However, the sexual abuse is really perplexing because there doesn't seem to be a clear or even remotely clear biological explanation for it. Do these Nazca boobies share a nesting space? They do, yeah. So they are, um, many seabirds nest in uh, colonies. So if you uh, can can conjure up an image uh, in your mind of, you know, these these oceanic uh, islands jut out of, of the water, and they're often quite bare other than having birds on them. And these nesting colonies are basically massive, massive collections of birds that all roost in one place to generally avoid um, major predation events. So, so there's safety in numbers to do it that way. But of course, on these rocky outcroppings, there's not a lot of food. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's it's a bit of a, of a you know, trade-off in terms of having a safe place, quote-unquote safe, from other mammalian predators or other um, bird predators, even avian predators that could um, get to them. But then also there is this, um, this, this, togetherness factor that they all kind of have to look out for each other and so in that case it, it sort of brews a scenario where if there's a cheater as in one of these non-parental adult visitors that cheater has a good chance of getting what they want because no one's expecting that science for the people is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective we are a member of the skeptic network a collection of blogs podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hazra, here with Karen Bonder. All right, so we're going to stick with our, our dark theme for the moment. Uh, and we're going to get into, uh, you have a whole chapter dedicated to something called brood parasitism, which 
I think is a pretty sinister parenting strategy. So can you go ahead and explain that to us? It is. It's fascinating and sinister and um, such an interesting example for a lot of, of biological questions. Basically, what happens is females of one bird species, and the two most common bird parasitic species are um, cuckoos and cowbirds. Um, these moms will gestate and then lay their eggs in the nest of another female of another species entirely. Um, and so there's a couple of, of initial aspects of this that are perplexing. First of all, why would any mom abandon their own eggs in the nest of someone else? And second of all, why would you abandon your eggs in a nest of a creature that's not even the same species? Um, well, it turns out that this is actually quite a successful and viable biological strategy, especially for what are called generalist brood parasites. These are brood parasitic birds that can lay their eggs in the nests of many species. They're pretty indiscriminate about who they parasitize. They just want to get their eggs out there. So all of the energy that these moms save um, from not <laughs> from not supporting or incubating these eggs or, or getting um, foodstuffs, bringing it back to the nest, these moms are not doing any of that. They're putting all of their energy simply into making more and more and more eggs to just drop off elsewhere. It's a pretty successful strategy. Yeah, that's actually pretty smart. It's smart, although it's quite, you know, it would be very difficult for us. Well, it is very difficult for us to wrap our heads around the fact that um, that that this happens. But I guess that's where there isn't that emotional or that bonding that we that I that I talked about earlier. Um, there just doesn't appear to be that kind of a of a factor here. And then on the flip side of brood parasitism, I knew I was going to have issues with that word, um, <laughs> is something called a communal breeding. So how does that work? Yeah, so communal breeding is an interesting scenario where um, certain either birds or mammals act almost like a bee or ant colony where there are some individuals in that colony that can be reproductive um, and others that aren't. And so there are actually rules around who gets to be a mom. And that's another aspect of writing this book that I found to be, wow, jarring and fascinating. Can you even imagine as, as a human female to, to sort of think in terms of, wow, I wonder if I will get a chance to reproduce this very, uh, it's very creepy and kind of like the handmaid's tale almost. <laughs> um, but in these communally breeding mammals, um, two of the most prevalent examples are meerkats uh, and naked mole rats. There, there's a queen. There's a queen, for example, naked mole rat. She's the one that has all of the babies for the entire group. No one else, no, no, no other females in the naked mole rat colony will reproduce. They will instead spend all of their time um, assisting the queen with the litters of, of uh, pups that she is continuously gestating. They'll support her with food. They'll actually babysit, all that kind of thing. So that's another interesting strategy. Um, naked mole rat moms are essentially baby and milk machines. 
machines. They, they almost never even move literally um, from where they are. They just keep having babies. What a strange <laughs> existence. You know, for a, mam- for a mammal, that's a really odd thing to consider. Um, not to mention the fact that these are very long-lived animals um, and a female will have, you know, 8 to 12 ki- uh, pups in a litter and these this will be continuous through her life. So these, these mammals can actually have up to 900 babies and you know, when you consider a human, you know, female that has, I don't know, if we, if the human female had more than four or five, we would consider that to be quite remarkable. Um, well, these naked mole rat moms have 900. <laughs> you know, that's wow. That's it's insane. astounding. Yeah. It's really something. So what is the benefit to help another mom raise her offspring when you can't have your own? Mm-hmm. Great question. So, and not a question that we fully understand the answer to. In terms of the insects that have this kind of a colonial existence, there's a good deal of genetic relatedness between all of the females in a colony. Um, and so essentially they are taking care of their sister's babies, something like that. So their, their little nieces, nephews. Um, and because of that, fact because there's still um, a highly relatedness a high relatedness component between these individuals that makes sense biologically um, in the cases of the mammals that isn't really the way it goes um, there could be zero relatedness between um, a female who is taking care of another female's babies and those babies and and so yes that begs your question why would she do this um, it's thought that there are social aspects that contribute to this. It's thought that um, it's well known what will happen to a female who does actually go on the on go rogue and get pregnant. Um, the queen female will go so far as to kill her babies. Um, uh, other females in the group will go so far as to kill the babies of rogue females because nobody really wants that that unrest, if you will, um, that sort of disruption to the peaceful functioning of the group. So ant and bee colonies um, in general are extremely efficient, well-running machines. Why are they so efficient and well-running? Because you don't step out of line. And if you step out of line, you get killed. That's kind of the way it goes. (laughs) Um, and so when you apply those kind of principles to a mammalian system, you're going to get um, a, a little less conformity. <laughs> but it, it's still, it's thought that females do operate under the fear um, of just wanting to avoid a situation where they're going to compromise not only their genetic material, if it's going to get killed anyways, um, they're going to compromise their social status and they're going to compromise their ability to um, even thrive in their own lives because if the whole group cuts them off and shuns them away well then they they'll probably die so i read in your book that some females in a certain species will will actually adopt orphans especially in primates or i guess specifically in primates why does this happen yeah so i think this is again where we see primates uh, that have evolved aspects of cognitive thinking that don't have a lot to do with basic biology survive and reproduce and and what i mean is that female female moms have this love and this bond between them oftentimes that i believe is what is involved in in an adoption because there isn't a good biological reason 
unless there is some kind of relatedness. Um, but other than that, there isn't a good biological reason for a mom to spend so much of her time and energy with an infant that doesn't belong to her biologically. However, we see it a lot. And of course, we see it a lot in our species. So what is the other, um, you know, kind of explanation? We don't necessarily look, need to look to the hardline biology. Maybe it really is that mom's care and that mom's love and that's enough. <laughs> I, I think we kind of, you know, scientists don't love me when I say things like that. But I think it, it becomes very ridiculous to not examine the component of just a bond between a mom and an infant, and especially if you are a mom already. You have you you understand what those feelings are like, and those feelings can be reconjured even if that infant hasn't come from your body. So what do you think are the, the major stresses of being a mother? I guess, you know, humans tend to forget how difficult it is to simply survive in the natural world. Um, and so I would say resource availability is a big one. Um, for us, it's, it's, it's almost unthinkable. Um, <laughs> you know, we get in our car, we go to the grocery store, we pick up all the food that we need. It's already clean and available and easy to get, easy to process. We give that to ourselves. We give that to our babies. It's not the case in the real world. Um, moms have to make the difficult decision to go foraging. Um, if there isn't enough sustenance in the immediate area for their baby. Now, this means a difficult decision. Bring the baby. Or, or hide the baby. Um, in animals like primates where there is uh, a grasping reflex that develops very early, well, that's great. Primate moms can generally take their babies with. Um, but these sort of, I think that's maybe the biggest challenge facing moms um, in the animal kingdom uh, are these basic aspects of survival, combining those with motherhood. <laughs> you know, when you think about how human moms, we, gosh, we try so hard to be great moms and we don't have to consider surviving for the most part you know we don't have to even think about that we open the box of diapers and there's a you know there it is it's easy for us to do these things we don't have to worry about a predator jumping out of our drawer and killing <laughs> us um and that's a, that's actually you know it sounds funny but it's not meant to be flippant it's a it's a very big aspect of consideration in the animal kingdom moms can't lose track of their basic biology we can you actually describe in wild moms that breastfeeding uh, is the single most energy draining aspect of motherhood. And this includes pregnancy and giving birth. So why does breastfeeding require so much energy? Yeah, this is a really interesting aspect of, of the book that I learned a lot about this topic. Lactation is yep, the most energetically demanding time for a female mammal. And, and it's basically because her body is providing all 100% of the sustenance for her baby, her offspring. Um, and, and for a growing mammal, a baby, this is a pretty substantial amount of food. Um, and this is not happening once. This is not happening twice. This is happening many times a day uh, for, you know, for up to several years, depending on the species. Animals like orangutans breastfeed their infants for eight to 12 years. That's an incredibly long amount of time. Um, and so looking at how 
the mammalian mother machine, if you will, becomes this, this perfect vessel to deliver not just a healthy baby, but then to feed this baby. Um, and this is what I mean by the identity of a female animal being different after she's gestated, birthed and fed a baby. That me, that, that female will, will never be the same animal again, partly because of all of these massive feats of biology that her body is accomplishing kind of outside of her basic cognition as well. This is all kind of going on behind the scenes in mom's body as she goes about her day-to-day business. So going along with breastfeeding, um, a mom has to make a decision with every offspring that um, when to let go, I guess, or I guess wean their child. So how do wild moms decide when to do this? Yeah, Uh, this is something that we don't have a, a very tight grasp on. But what we do know is that it is, again, very tightly related to resource availability. Um, and it could be in kind of an unexpected way. For example, um, if something like a, a mother a sea lion or seal has had one pup in a reproductive season and foodstuffs uh, in the environment are, are, you know, not necessarily abundant, but available, then mom has to make the decision, okay, am I going to have another pup? Um, um, and get two, you know, do my bet hedging and get two successful um, pups out of this reproductive season, or am I going to concentrate on just this one baby? Depends on the individual, depends on the year, and as I said, a multitude of other factors. But if she decides to hedge her bets and try to have another baby, she'll actively kick that first baby off of her teat, and it will be, um, you know, and it looks kind of forceful and, and, um, <laughs> what's the word, you know, harsh, I guess, tough love. (laughs) Um, and however, I've also, you know, read an example that ended up making it into the chapter in the book on, um, death where a mother has to make the very difficult decision. In this case, it was an elephant mom who had, um, an older infant, that she had already put in a lot of years of effort into. I mean, the gestational process in elephants is nearly two years to begin with. And she had an elephant calf who was about two years old and she had another pup in the meantime. Um, and, resources, uh, basically, you know, whatever happened in the environment, something happened, she wasn't able to find any more enough resources to be able to eat enough to feed her calf as well as her infant. And so she had to basically allow that infant to starve um, and die. And that is kind of an unthinkable situation for any parent mom, of course. Um, and an elephant is a very intelligent animal. And you have to appreciate that this was a heart-wrenching and horrible and, and unwinning situation for this mom, no matter what she did. Um, that's really tough. And that's, again, that's where I really want to drive home the discourse between what happens in the animal kingdom mm-hmm. and what happens in the human world, because that's really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> that's the best way to say it. That's, that's so harsh and it's so unforgiving and it's so unfair, but it happens all the time. Yeah, I think losing a child is the worst thing that could happen to mother, to whatever circumstances. And so I actually want to talk about what happens to a mother's brain during and after pregnancy. So first of all, for our listeners out there, baby brain 
is a real thing. <laughs> oh so my what's God. What's the biological explanation for baby brain in moms? Yeah. So basically, diversion is the explanation. So all of the brain, uh, all of the blood that is continuously pumped to our brain and all the oxygen and all the work that our body does to, to keep our brain sharp, uh, gets diverted. I mean, of course, it's, it's not like we're taking an aspect of our life's, uh, of our lives away when we get pregnant. We're simply adding more to the plate of stuff that our body already has to do. And so that extra energy has to come from somewhere. And I mean, I'm sure it comes from a lot of places in our body, but one of the places it comes is, uh, is our ability to remember and to, you know, be organized and things. And it's this, this phenomenon called baby brain. It is just a real thing. Um, you legitimately become a lot more forgetful. And that's because your body is just working hard at something else. I mean, that makes sense. And then I guess a really um, a terrifying aspect of motherhood is the postpartum depression. So humans are actually not the only animals that go through this. What does postpartum depression look like in other animals? Yeah, so this, this was a really... Um, personal part of the book for me to write because I have actually had postpartum depression. Um, I had it with all four of my children and I, I've often wondered what postpartum depression looks like for other primates. And it turns out that it actually looks very similar to how it looks in humans. Primates get depressed period. Um, not, not maternally derived depression, but just plain old, good old depression. We know that primates get this and we can observe aspects of the, their behavior, um, such as internal, uh, rocking and being, uh, you know, quiet and still and alone and, and sort of stooped over. We can, we can make inferences about those kinds of behaviors. And so, yeah, when we, um, when, when females gestate and birth, babies and then um, react in remarkably different ways towards those babies. Scientists can use those comparisons and also look at aspects of physiology so they can draw samples of blood um, and take a look at how different hormones, neurotransmitters, uh, different concoctions of molecules are working uh, in synergy or not to create these behaviors in females. And so there are directly um, direct correlations between certain neurotransmitters, um, serotonin, your serotonins, your your dopamines, um, that that females who are depressed are lacking in these. And we see uh, sort of very repeatable, kind of reliable measures of behavior, even abuse, ignoring the babies, um, being forceful with the babies, being very nonchalant towards the babies. These are all things that are that are readily observed in primate moms who suffer from depression. It's not that different from human moms that have it. How did you get over your or get through your postpartum depression? It it was very difficult. It and I I think the one of the biggest aspects that made it better was that I got some really good advice from another mom and that that speaks to something that's that's innate in our lives and our biology and something that happens across the primate world. It's moms can help other moms because they get it. 
they understand what it's like to have been there. So in the case of, of, of my postpartum depression, um, I had a friend who also had postpartum depression and she led me through and she was so encouraging to, to, for me to get help. And I, and I did. Um, and I was able to get on a, a medication that was very effective for me. And so, you know, it's a journey. And so I guess, what I mean by this whole answer is that there are many aspects of motherhood that unite us. And I think um, now I kind of make a point of always talking about my postpartum and always making this aspect of my life public because I think in our, in our habits of isolating, you know, and going into our little houses and leaving our social group behind, that's unnatural for us, actually. And it's, it's probably fosters depression much more so than living that social communal life where other moms could automatically be there. You know, many symptoms of postpartum are also related to things like lack of sleep and lack of support, um, and exhaustion, right? And so if you're in a social group, you have a better chance of catching up on some of that sleep while another of your, of your owl mothers takes, takes care of your baby. We don't have that as much. And that really can impact how we go in, in terms of our psychology postpartum. Does postpartum depression always pass after a period of time or does it sometimes just stick around for mm -hmm. some others? Yeah, all of the above. And I'm glad you asked that because a lot of the physiological neurochemical changes that happen to a female during gestation and childbirth don't ever change back again. Um, and so in many cases, you may be looking at a female animal who is a new animal uh, for all intents and purposes. You know, she has changed. Um, and it could be aspects of her neurochemistry have changed so that she may always be depressed or have different aspects of her body chemistry um, make her act in different ways. Um, you do hear stories like this. She was different after she had the children or blah, blah. It, it, there can be real biological, physiological reasons for that. What do we do about that? We just celebrate who we are. As far as I'm concerned, we celebrate the moms that we are and are. it's up to our um, social circle, circles and our partners to support us in that. That's my position. Okay, now let's talk about what happens when you are no longer able to produce offspring, otherwise known as menopause. So why does menopause happen? Yeah, yeah, this... I, this is such an interesting topic because menopause or the, the, um, the loss of reproductive ability about halfway through the lifespan is, is very rare in the animal kingdom. We only see it, uh, in, in ourselves and in the two whales, two, two, you know, completely different clinistic groups. And actually the strategies surrounding grandmotherhood are quite different between primates and whales. Um, why would motherhood evolve? or grandmotherhood evolve or menopause evolve there's a, this perfect storm of 
there being an extremely laborious gestation and birth, especially so for humans, as we talked about a little bit earlier in our conversation. Um, it's very, very hard for human females to give birth. It's very, it's a huge, um, you know, because of our upright stance and the, the brain size of our babies, it's very hard on us. N- not to mention the nine month gestational period and our baby brains and all of that goes into making this a very exhausting and all encompassing enterprise, especially on an aging body. Really and truly, uh, the human female body needs to be young in order to make this happen. It's much more difficult for older females to successfully have babies because of all the potential complications. This is not a secret. We already, you know, this is something that modern medicine has known for a long time. Um, and, and it's thought that basically, um, with the advent, uh, in the, in the back in the plioplasticine era of, uh, of, of human populations going from being, um, hunter gatherers, uh, it, and, and getting all kinds of, um, uh, leafy greens and easy to, to process kinds of foods, um, back in the, this era when the foodstuffs changed, uh, from, from being easy to manipulate to being desert kinds of foods, things like roots and tubers and things that were very difficult to get. It thought that this actually, um, was, was a bit of the driving force behind moms, uh, older females no longer having babies of their own, but sticking around to help their daughters with their daughters, uh, babies because this, first of all, this perfect storm, like I said, of the, of the immensity of what motherhood means to an aging body. It's very, very difficult. And also this kind of new open niche where foodstuffs in the African savannas changed, um, and grandmothers could almost do something different. Um, they, well, in fact, they could do something different. They could help forage and, and support the offspring of their daughters. This sort of seemed to be a win for everybody involved because grandma no longer has to gestate babies, which is very hard on her. She can be extremely effective and helpful. Um, and she is half related to the babies of her daughter. And so this makes sense only along maternal lines, I might add, because she has, she knows that the babies that came out of her vagina are hers. She knows that the babies that come out of her daughter's vagina are therefore her grandbaby. She does not have the same kind of certainty uh, along the lines of her sons. And so that's where we see the evolution of grandmotherly care and the advent of the evolution of menopause. What kind of message did you want to get across ultimately to your readers? Hmm. I think there's a few, but I think, I guess a couple of big themes for me are, I like to look at the overreaching similarities between all animal moms and, um, to kind of humble us as humans. We, we tend to feel as though we are better and smarter and different than all of the, the other animals out there. And there's a lot of cases where, uh, animals are elegantly and, and, and effortlessly, it seems like pulling off things that we can't seem to do. <laughs> um, but, but so the, so there's that, that kind of uniting factor. But I guess the other main a theme of the book that I really wanted to highlight is, is, is this thing that's come up a couple times for us today as well, which is that a female animal changes, um, irreversibly by becoming a mom and who she becomes and the new animal that she is, is something that needs to be, um, addressed, respected, observed, understood, 
about population biology, not just in the animal kingdom, but in the human world. I don't think in the human world we really pay that much attention to the different biological changes that happen to females. We simply expect female moms um, to or human moms to be able to pick up with their lives as they were before and move on and keep going. Yes. And so I guess this, the second main theme of what I wanted to get across with writing this book is is to really highlight that there's a big biological <laughs> issue here. Females that become moms go through profound and irreversible changes to their physiology, their psychology, their basic biology. And I don't know that our society has really appreciated that in any great way. We kind of expect females to get back to their lives and be, be back, you know, get back to quote unquote normal um, as, as soon as possible after they have these babies. And I don't think we really give females enough, uh, I don't know, exploratory power or, or respect for the new animals that they become. Um, and I think it's an, an emerging area of research. We're actually just still learning about all the irreversible physiological things that happen to females. Um, and, and, you know, when we're talking about the basics of neurochemistry, these are pretty profound things. Um, they make moms into crazy good multitaskers. <laughs> um, and maybe there's aspects of motherhood that, that change our biology in ways that we haven't appreciated and that we probably should. That's, I guess, my main MO. Is there anything you weren't able to cover in your book that you wish you could have? I guess that I would love to to see more research. I think the things that I didn't cover, I didn't cover because I couldn't find enough research on them. Um, and so these basic things like uh, the first couple of days of motherhood, what does that look like for different animals? These are really difficult things to observe in, in nature. Often, of course, uh, females will will actively seek solitude and quiet and, and somewhere safe and private to, to have their babies. That's no secret. So to observe actual births in the wild is very, very difficult. Um, so I guess I would have loved to include more aspects of that, but it's simply hard to get. Uh, I will continue um, looking towards those, those kinds of studies, you know, with, with great anticipation, there are some um, primate colonies, for example, um, that that are well researched, and these are the best uh, areas in which to per- perhaps observe um, birthing events because these these colonies are quite used to to being observed by humans. But it's a private thing. There's not a lot of easy ways to observe it. I know you've said several times in this interview that males. Uh, oftentimes do not, oftentimes do not have an important role in parenting, at least compared to moms. But do you think, um, you might write a book about wild dads in the future? Yeah, yeah. So that's come up. And I, I definitely would like to write wild dads. I think, um, while there aren't a, a huge amount of examples, there are some very, very interesting examples. And they're based in, you know, quirky aspects of biology, you know, things like seahorses and pipe fishes, yeah. these, these dads that actually have these gestational chambers, um, that essentially get pregnant. This kind of throws a wrench in the, in the conundrum of basic biology because not only, 
um, are these dads doing this gestational work, which leaves uh, females to essentially compete for their affections. Females are still producing the expensive gametes. So this, this creates a bit of an evolutionary problem. And, um, and it's, and it's really fun and interesting to look at aspects where, where dads come in and throw a bit of a biological wrench into, into the system. All right. So in your series, we have wild sex, wild moms. What's next? Yeah, I would love to write wild babies. I think wild babies would be pretty fun because there are um, so many interesting examples of of, of newborn infants um, that I think any human mom who's had a baby would be really interested in reading. Um, you know, there are, there are babies that, that, that are able to simply, you know, <laughs> drop out of mom's womb. Um, things like elephants, uh, you know, get up and dust themselves off and, you know, get on with life. Um, whereas you think of something like a human infant that is just utterly, you know, oh, so pathetic and so utterly unable to do anything to to help its own survival. Um, you know, we're not all that distantly related from many animals that have very different um, newborn behaviors. I think that would be a really interesting book to research and to write. All right, Karen, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for, for having me on. If you want to learn more about Karen Bonder and her book, Wild Moms, you can check out her links on our website at www.scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.